Prior to the initiation of the most significant earthly ministry ever known, Christ prepared Himself by venturing into the wilderness to commune with God. How do you commune with God? How does that communion prepare you to serve? How have you felt Christ's mercy and healing along the way? I invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the Spirit may teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. The Spirit communicates with me through a warm feeling in my heart. Usually, the way I feel the Spirit is the Spirit talks to me when I'm asleep or it comes to me in a dream. Normally, it's just quiet thoughts and impressions that come to my mind and my heart. It gives me an idea or a thought, and it's so powerful that I have to get up and then act on it. In my own experience, it's when I feel really peaceful, really joyful. Again, it's like a subtle kind of underlying feeling, and it just makes me feel comfortable, but also gives me hope. So when I'm feeling hopeful about something or optimistic, then I know that I'm feeling the Spirit. Welcome, everybody. My name is Ben Lomu, and I am your host. Our gospel scholar for today is Tyler Griffin. Tyler is a teaching professor in the Department of Ancient Scripture at BYU and is also an associate dean of religious education. Prior to coming to BYU in 2010, he taught seminary and institute for 13 years. He and his wife, Kiplin, have 10 children, five boys and five girls. Tyler, welcome. Thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure to be here. And our special guest today is Terrell Givens. Terrell is the Neil A. Maxwell Senior Research Fellow at Brigham Young University. He has published in Biography, Latter-day Saint Culture in Theology, and Intellectual History. He is currently writing a history of Western Christianity. His most recent book, The Doors of Faith, discusses how a more expansive understanding of God builds more durable discipleship. He lives with his wife, Fiona, in Midway, Utah. Terrell, thank you so much for being here today. Happy to be here. Great people and a great topic. And we're also joined by our studio audience. Welcome. And to the viewers at home, thank you for joining us. During this discussion, we hope you will share your own experiences with us on Facebook or Instagram. There's also plenty more to do and download at byutv.org slash comefollowup. Uh, the discussion that we're going to have today is based off of our studies in Matthew chapter 4 and Luke chapters 4 and 5. And this aligns with the Come Follow Me resource provided by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The two topics we're going to discuss today are first, communing with God prepares me to serve Him. And second, healed in the Savior's way. But before we jump into those specifics, Tyler, uh, will you give us a, an overview, uh, the context of these chapters? What's going on? Who is Jesus with? Uh, that way we can kind of better understand the situation. Absolutely. So to lead into our scriptures for today, it's helpful to remember that Jesus is coming into this uh, communing with God experience and temptations out in the wilderness straight from the baptism experience at okay. the Jordan River with, with John the Baptist which is kind of his gateway into his ministry. So he's now beginning at age 30, he's going to begin his three-year ministry, which will culminate with his infinite atonement. But it's fascinating that he begins that ministry uh, by going up into the mountain apart to be with God. And, and he's not just gonna jump in and start calling apostles and performing miracles and teaching without first making that very clear connection 
with Heavenly Father. It's a powerful principle for us in our life today. All right, thank you. Terrell, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I would just say that if we're going to be using the word commune, that we should be aware that there's a very powerful implicit meaning in commune that isn't found in, in, in comparable words. To commune implies a reciprocity. And throughout the Christian tradition, we've often thought of prayer as a one-way process. You know, Ralph Waldo Emerson even said prayer is a soliloquy, right, into a kind of abysm. And uh, communion suggests that we are expressing, that we are petitioning, we are asking, but that we are also being instructed or responded to in some manner. So I think that's an important way to think about the process. And do you think that, because throughout his life, I'm sure that the Savior was in communication with God, is there a difference kind of taking it to a higher level now that he's about to start his ministry? Do you think that has anything to do with this wording of communing versus just praying? Well, I think so. I, I, I think as Tyler said, we're supposed to see this period as a period of preparation. Okay. And I think the preparation isn't just that he's fortifying himself, but that he has also been guided, instructed, inspired, uh, and, and prepared in very concrete ways for the ministry that is to follow. I wanna hear from the audience. When have you felt the need to draw close to God and seek his guidance? Ramses. Years ago when I got called to be Elder's Corps president, my work required that I worked every Sunday. So I was only off one Sunday a month, which was fast Sunday. Then I only could attend sacrament. So it was very overwhelming because I didn't know any of the brethren that were gonna be in the quorum. And so after I got called, I prayed and the answer came that I needed just to study the gentlemen that were in the quorum. <clears throat> and that if I did that earnestly, that when I saw them, I would know them. And it was amazing after about a couple of weeks, when I went back to church the first Sunday, I knew everybody by name. And I could know who they were, something about them. And it allowed me to be able to assimilate easier into the quorum and get to know everyone and to feel more at ease. And I came to realize that when the Lord calls us, he has already qualified us, but it's still up to us to do the work to be prepared. And how do you feel that that specific example has strengthened your relationship with God from that moment? It continues to just reaffirm that he's aware of me and that some of the things that are in my patriarchal blessing are meant, or not that they're meant, but they're true, but it also requires my effort. And as long as I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing, that he will always take care of me. I, I love that example of just, it's a process. Yes. It's a, it's a learning process, trying to continually uh, develop and strengthen that relationship uh, with God. What would you tell, as far as those that are watching that are maybe struggling, what can we learn from this example of how we can strengthen that relationship in, when we communicate with God? Well, I think, you know, we often hear the question, how can I know that that's the spirit speaking to mm -hmm. me and not just my own right inner voice? Uh, and Joseph Smith said the key to understanding revelation is that you follow the prompting and then you look at the results and if the fruits are borne out, then you know that that was the voice of the Lord speaking to you. And so I think it is a kind of process of trial and error. I would add to that that you'll notice um, to, to tie in with, with what we're sharing here from Ramses is this idea that it's a, it is a process and it doesn't, it's not usually an event that takes place quickly. Jesus, for instance, when, when we're in chapter four of Matthew, it says, then was Jesus led up of the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he was afterwards and hungered. That 40 days, 40 nights implies this 
This takes time. Do you think sometimes we get a little impatient when we maybe perhaps expect it to happen so quickly? So that would be my advice is stick with it. Stick with the process, the the covenant path, the journey of discipleship. It, It takes time and it takes a lot of work, mental, physical, spiritual, emotional exertion. Um, we had a question come in from one of our viewers, and I would love to, to not only hear what our panel has to say, but what you guys have to say uh, about this question. Hello, my name is Najib Tawid, and I'm from Beirut, Lebanon. In this modern age, how can I tell what is truly God's word and not just background noise or even my self-doubt? I know God has a plan for me, and I live with that trust. But God also gave me brains to think and analyze so I can better serve him. How can I know what is the right thing for me to do? How can we distinguish God's will from the background noise of the world? David. Um, that around me when I was a little kid, um, I was so sick that I went to the hospital many times. And I think I was six or seven. And that little kid remembered the primary songs and some nights when I would hear other Chris crying, right, or I felt alone, those songs came to my mind, right? Especially I'm a, I'm a son of God. I was saying it to myself. When at, eight, at, at that age, I learned that the communication is always. And I want to, to answer that question, I want to use it as an example, a radio frequency, right? It's not like when I want to talk to God, I just, well, what's the frequency again? But it's like if I keep that same frequency all the time, then the noises in the background are not as loud because I'm in the frequency with, with him. What do you, what do you th- I, love, I love the way uh, David was saying there about it's, it's a constant communication. It's not like a start and stop. Uh, what are your thoughts on, on this idea of communing with God as a daily throughout your day, even like by opening a door uh, for somebody? How does that process work where we make it more continuous as opposed to, you know, singular events? It's a really good question. It ties back into this idea of a process of discipleship. And every week we go to the sacrament table and we promise to always remember him. That's our part of always having our thoughts and our feelings turning heavenward constantly, not just when we're in those moments of of dire need. And then you'll notice the promise in the the prayer for the, the sacrament bread is, that they will always have his spirit to be with them, which is exactly what you're describing, this idea of it's a constant flow of that still small voice surrounded by other voices in the world, but to, to continually stay tuned into that frequency, it's, it's powerful. Terrell, uh, you had mentioned a little bit about uh, the word uh, to commune. Uh, can you explain a little more about what that really looks like uh, as, as opposed to just merely praying? Yeah, let me, let me give an example. I was at a, a Sacred Spaces conference a few years ago, and there was a Jewish scholar, uh, an Orthodox Jew, and I, I, uh, during a break, I wanted to get to know him. And so I, I saw that he had removed himself a little ways from the crowd, uh, stepped outside. And, I, and as I was approaching to converse with him, I saw that, that he was in the midst of, of a prayer. He was chanting. Uh, presumably, he was reciting a psalm. And I remember being struck by the fact that it was a public place, it was the middle of campus, it was the middle of the day, and he had created this environment for himself uh, by reciting words that to him were sacred. And 
it, it made me aware of how important ritual can be and that we need to be, I think we need to create our own rituals. I think we need to create a sacred space at some time during the day where we prepare the ground so that if, uh, if God has something to communicate to us, we're available and, uh, and able to hear so that we actually anticipate the possibility of a response anytime that we are engaging in communion. It reminds me of uh, kind of what Dave was saying, what you guys have been sharing, um, how these small little things that we can do to draw closer to God, it's like you know, adding a little drop of oil to your lamp uh, mm-hmm. you know, on a daily basis to keep that communication going. Uh, Elder Iring has a great quote talking about drawing closer to God. He says, if you want to stay close to someone who has been dear to you, but from whom you are separated, you know how to do it. You would find a way to speak to them, you would listen to them, and you would discover ways to do things for each other. The more often that happened, the longer it went on, the deeper would be the bond of affection. If much time passed without the speaking, the listening and the doing, the bond would weaken. God is perfect and omnipotent, and you and I are mortal. But he is our father, he loves us, and he offers the same opportunity to draw closer to him as would a loving friend. And you will do it in much the same way, speaking, listening, and doing. So I wanna focus on those three words and just get some thoughts from you on, on drawing near to God through speaking, listening, and doing. What are some of your thoughts? Well, I think it ties us back into, into Matthew chapter four. I can't picture Jesus going up for 40 days and 40 nights or for, for an extended period of time in the wilderness to be with God. And I can't picture him just speaking to God and, and sharing his thoughts, his, his concerns or his ideas. I can picture him sharing all of that, but I can, I can picture in my mind's eye, Jesus spending long periods of time being still to be able to really listen to what the Father would have him know. And then the beautiful aspect is the rest of the the gospel story is he comes down out of that experience and now you get the doing. Mm -hmm. And along the way, multiple returns to, to being alone with God throughout his ministry. Jesus is going to likewise repeatedly go into the mount to commune with God and, and speak, listen, and do. Great thoughts. Thank you both for sharing with us and the audience. Again, thank you for sharing with us. Uh, we'll touch on these, uh, these topics and other things in the footnotes portion, but thanks for contributing to our first uh, topic. And for you at home, uh, how does the Spirit speak to you as you commune with God? Share with us on Facebook and Instagram. My favorite scriptural account about Christ's healing is in 3 Nephi chapter 17. It's my all-time favorite passage of scripture when he's with the Nephites. And what I love about it is that when he's teaching them, they looked on him. They wanted him to stay. They wanted him to tarry with them. And that's always so touching because I know that feeling when you're hurting and you want someone to stay longer. And that's what he does. One of my favorite scriptures when Jesus heals someone was when he healed the blind. And it's because symbolized that sometimes in my pain, in my struggles, I blind myself. I don't want to see the big picture. But when the healing comes, I'm able to see the big picture. I see what He wants me to see and what I can do and I can be. The second topic we're going to discuss today is healed in the Savior's way. And we're going to have Tyler kind of catch us up. And where does this reference come from? What's the context behind this? 
So what we're going to be covering here is the story of the palsied man, or the man who is paralyzed, who is lowered down through the roof and is first forgiven and then healed. Uh, to set the stage for that, Jesus has now relocated. He's moved from Nazareth down into Capernaum, down there on the, the Sea of Galilee. He's begun doing a lot of miracles and a lot of teaching, and his popularity is, is on the rise, and a lot of people are thronging him. And uh, it, it's fascinating that before you even get into this story of this, this miracle, you'll notice in, in Luke chapter 5, verse 16, it says, and he, speaking of Jesus, withdrew himself into the wilderness and prayed. So there you have it again, what we've been talking about in, in the first segment is this idea that this is an ongoing process. One prayer isn't gonna do it. You've gotta keep going. Sarah, what does this story teach us about uh, Jesus and his role as a master healer? I think it's one of the two most important healing episodes in the New Testament because of what it teaches us about healing. And I think it's very deliberate on the part of the Savior, and I think it's, it's picked up on by Luke. And so I think he wants to reinforce this point. It, it helps to begin by remembering that this episode follows immediately upon Jesus' self-proclamation in the synagogue where for the first time in public, he declares himself to be the fulfillment of prophecy. And he does this by reading from Isaiah 61 with the, the prophecy of that person who will come and heal the brokenhearted. And then he begins to heal in fulfillment of that prophecy. But what's really striking, of course, about this, this episode with the, the paralytic is that the, 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 the injured man comes hoping to be physically healed. And of course, Christ says, well, your sins are forgiven you. And what clearly seems to be the principle that Christ has taught is that all kinds of damage to our soul and our body can be healed by the Christ. And I think that that's the, the point which is taught to the surprise of this man and the onlookers as well. Yeah, I would imagine, you know, for somebody who in his situation was, you know, had heard the stories and was probably so excited, I'm gonna walk today. And all of a sudden it's like, your sins are forgiven. And it's like, well, I wasn't expecting that. I mean, okay. So I, I'm curious um, from, from the audience, when have you sought a specific blessing from the Lord, but were given something that you perhaps didn't expect? Jennifer. So about 20 years ago, I was enduring some really excruciating back pain and I kept praying that it would go away and I ended up having to have emergency back surgery. And it was really hard um, because I couldn't do anything for myself. And I just kept praying, please make the pain go away. Unfortunately, the healing process of that surgery was a lot slower than it should have been because of some other conditions. And I just kept praying, where is God? Where, where is this healing? But in that process, um, I found I had to really rely on my new spouse at that time and others around to serve me. And I learned a lot more about patience in the Lord and a lot more about God's love for me than I would have learned had I been healed right away from the physical issues I was having with my back. Jennifer, when did you come to that realization that you were being healed from, that you were receiving something else that you were seeking initially? You know, it was actually in the scriptures because I was in so much pain and I couldn't really move. And I was reading about um, the burdens being eased from their backs, actually in the Book of Mormon. And it just struck me 
that um, for whatever reason, I couldn't have that burden completely taken from me, but that Christ was there in the form of others showing me love that I wouldn't have felt in, in another situation. You know, and this really does speak to Christ's overall mission as a whole to, as the Jews were expecting uh, one type of liberation where he was offering something so much greater. So what are some of your thoughts on, on the Savior presenting himself as something more than just a physical healer? Well, we get quite an explicit differentiation in, uh, in the Book of Mormon where we get an account of Christ's visit to the Nephites. And he actually says in language that I think evokes this principle, right? He says, come unto me and be converted that I may heal you. And so there, once again, we would expect him to say so that I can forgive you, so that I can save you. He uses the term heal. I think in recognition of the fact that it's this all-encompassing um, process of making us whole. Tying that in with what Jennifer said, I think it's interesting if you note that the physical miracles are usually the ones that get our attention the most mm -hmm. and that we plead most fervently for deliverance from. But often if you stop and think about it, it's the physical miracles that last the least amount of mm -hmm. time. You know, this man who is paralyzed is going to end up getting healed, but when he dies, he's going to be quote-unquote paralyzed again. But the spiritual miracle of forgiving his sins, there's no clock ticking on that miracle. It's not going to go away. It's not going to get old. That's an eternally powerful miracle. And so it's this idea that sometimes we put all of our focus on, ooh, I need this physical miracle, when in fact, the most, often the most meaningful and lasting miracles are those which are of a spiritual nature, the, the healing of the soul, powerful. So how would you feel if you're this man who uh, you're paralyzed and you're, you're seeking, you've heard about Jesus and the miracles he's performing and all of a sudden you get a chance to meet him. And the first thing he says to you is your sins are forgiven you. Ashton. Um, for me, I'd probably feel a little bit nervous. It would definitely take a little bit of time to process. Um, it's kind of like what we've been talking about with the, it's definitely step by step, a little bit, takes a little bit of time to, to happen, I guess. Um, just because you kind of expected one thing, obviously, but you got a little bit something better, but you don't realize it at the time. So how do you generally respond, Ashton, in, in your life when you're seeking a specific blessing and they come in a way that you perhaps didn't expect? For me, I love to go on drives. And so I love to go and just think about what just happened. What did I just receive? Um, and usually by the end of that car ride or end of my pondering session, I can realize that that was probably better for me in, in the end and for me as a person than that short-term physical thing that I really wanted because I probably would have just continued on the path that I wanted. But in reality, it was not what the lower wanted. You know, I love what he said, continuing on the path that, that I wanted as opposed to what the Lord is trying, trying to do with us. And I love how through this, you know, the Savior's miracles and through this example, we see that, that he, he's giving us so often things that, that we may not necessarily know that we want, but he knows what would be best for us. Jesus is, in, in one way, he's teaching a message, not just to the people back then, but to us today as well, that just because somebody is working through a physical or a mental or an emotional or even at times a spiritual struggle doesn't mean that, it, that 
anything that they're suffering is a sign of God's divine disfavor mm -hmm. because he's, here's this man who's fully forgiven, but he's fully paralyzed still, which, which then leads to that middle uh, uh, part of the story with the Pharisees reasoning, it says in verse 21, who is this which speaketh blasphemes? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Well, and then his, his response back to them is, wait a minute, which is easier, to say thy sins be forgiven or to say rise up, take up thy bed and walk? And then he says, to show you that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he turns to the man and says, rise, take up thy bed and walk. So there are a lot of lessons being mm -hmm. taught in the midst of, of this healing miracle of who can forgive sins but God alone? I am God and I do have power to forgive these sins and I'm going to show you that I have power by now using a physical miracle to validate the spiritual miracle that has already taken place. Which is what matters most. Absolutely. What you, what he, the message he's trying to teach them. Terrell, what are some of your thoughts on this broader perspective of the Savior knowing what we really need, even if we don't at that moment? Yeah, well, I think, this, I think the language of healing uh, and these two episodes are particularly pertinent to this historical moment in which we find ourselves. Uh, one can do a search of general conference vocabulary. There's a database and one finds that there's been a 500% increase in the use of the term heal hmm. in general conference talks. And uh, I'm reminded that in the Lord's preface to the Doctrine and Covenants, he tells us that the commandments have been given after the manner of the language of the people. And in section 19, we're again told that language can be flexible, that it's given to work upon our hearts in particular ways. And so the doctrines aren't changing, but I think in some ways they're being enriched and expanded as the brethren shift our attention more and more to the breadth of the kinds of healing that uh, are so much in need of uh, addressing in, in our contemporary moment. Terrell, given your, your body of work, uh, why is healing uh, so special to you? You know, Joseph Smith once said that in order to be able to exercise faith necessary into salvation, that you have to have a correct idea of God's character and attributes. And it, it just strikes me that the most beautiful thing that uh, Joseph Smith restored was a knowledge of the true nature of God, which I think is centered in that description of a God who weeps, who is uh, in such solidarity with us that he makes himself vulnerable to our pains as, as well as our joys. And so I think that, the, that there is a tremendous overlap between the principle of healing that we've talked about and a restoration understanding of atonement. Because it seems to me that most forms of brokenness that we experience in the world and, and personally uh, are fractured relationships, ways in which we have hurt others or have been hurt by those that we love. And so atonement, if we remember the root as coming to be at one again, it seems to me that that is the ultimate form of healing and so I don't know that one can understand our relationship to God or the centrality of atonement without seeing that it's, it's correlation with the kind of healing we've talked about today. Thank you. What would you say to somebody out there who perhaps has many requests to be healed but is not feeling that power, the impact in their life? I would say stick with it. It's a process, it's a journey, it takes time. And maybe God won't end up giving you that physical miracle 
but God will always give spiritual miracles, always. And for some, he'll also give the, the physical miracle. But at the end of the day, if we can look for the hand of the Lord in our life with or without that physical miracle being given, then we can end our little uh, struggles the way this man and the people who were with him ended. I love the wording here in verse 25 because when Jesus tells the man to arise, look at the wording in verse 25, and immediately he rose up before them. So he's gone through a long process to get to this point, but there was an event of that healing. Immediately he rose up before them and took up that whereon he lay and departed to his own house. And for me, the most significant two words in that verse aren't the fact that a man who was completely paralyzed immediately stood up and picked up his bed. It's the two words, glorifying God. He's not glorying in his ability to walk. He's not glorying in the miracle itself. He's actually made a, a shift and his focus is praise be to God. And it's not just him. And verse 26 says, and they were all amazed and they glorified God. So perhaps a, a, an additional miracle is hearts were touched. Devotion was created. Connection with God and, and recognizing God's goodness was established for a lot of people that day, not just the man and his friends. Thank you. Tyler, you had mentioned this idea of holding on that perhaps when our expectations aren't met. Elder Holland has a wonderful quote talking about, about this. He says, trust in God, hold on his love. Know that one day the dawn will break brightly and all shadows of mortality will flee. Though we may feel we are like a broken vessel, as the psalmist says, we must remember that vessel is in the hands of the divine potter. Broken minds can be healed just the way broken bones and broken hearts are healed. While God is at work making those repairs, the rest of us can help by being merciful, non-judgmental, and kind. Thank you both for your comments and for the audience. Thank you for sharing your, your thoughts and experiences with us. And for those at home, uh, next up is Footnotes, our deeper dive with Tyler and Terrell into the topics and scriptures we've been discussing. One of the things that I like about Come Follow Up is that it brings experts and other perspectives to come to uh, the story scriptures, right? Uh, because sometimes you just focus on one thing, but hearing a different point of view help you like understand, oh, that's how I can apply that scripture to my own life, right? And then you can share it if you want to share it to someone else. So you can send that clip to someone else, right? So that's what I like it because it is applying the scriptures to our own life. With the audience members sharing their experiences, I was able to see how other people feel the Spirit. I know Ramses, he was mentioning how he um, feels the Spirit and connects and communes with God in his dreams, which I think is so cool. And so just to know how there are, there's not just one way to feel the Spirit, there's so many different ways and it depends on each person. Welcome to Come Follow Up Footnotes. We've discussed so much regarding communion and healing from Matthew 4 and Luke 4 and 5, and now we've dismissed our studio audience and are looking forward to diving further into these scriptures with Tyler and Tarot. Let's get started. Okay, Tyler, so last time in earlier segment, we had talked about how Jesus, he goes up to, uh, for 40 days 
into, is it a mountain in the wilderness? It's the wilderness, yeah. Wilderness. Um, can we talk a little bit about what he experiences there, some of the opposition that he faces while he's over up there? So before we actually dive into the first temptation, I, I do think it's important for us to recognize that here's Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, and we see this pattern with other prophets in the Book of Mormon, in the, the church history even, Joseph Smith going into the sacred grove, and he's going to have this amazing experience with God the Father and his son Jesus Christ. But right before that, he has this incredible, difficult encounter with the devil. Mm -hmm. Same thing happens to Moses in Moses chapter 1 and to other prophets in the Old Testament. And I think there's a significant um, power to prophets, and in this case, to the Lord Jesus Christ at the beginning of that ministry, walking away from this experience, not only having <clears throat> communed very personally and very powerfully with God, but also having an opportunity to understand the power and the force of the adversary and the opposition that's going to be working against his ministry. Why do you think that pattern is, Terrell, that when some of the biggest moments are about to happen in our lives, we do feel a little bit of temptation enter in? Yeah, I guess I would prefer to use the word test rather than temptation okay. or trial. And I think, you know, Matthew's about to describe the calling, right, of several of the apostles. And uh, so I think much of this area of his work is concerned with the cost of discipleship. I think that's one of the major themes here. And, you know, there are three temptations. Uh, and there's been an enormous amount of commentary that tries to find symbolic significance, or is this somehow a kind of template for all of the variety of temptations that that we face. And I don't think Jesus was genuinely tempted to forsake his ministry for a loaf of bread. Mm -hmm. uh, I think what's significant is that in this episode, as well as in the episode with Moses in particular, we find that, that the real heart and soul of the trial is the word if. And so what's being called into question here is Christ's certainty about his own identity and his own mission. And it's as if at least this is the way that I would read these temptations, so-called, is that it, it's as if Satan is laying out for him exactly what the cost is going to be. These are the alternatives. This is what you could have. This is what you will be sacrificing, right? The power, the glory, the honor, personal appetites, ego, all of these things, but it's going to be a high cost. And I think that's the moral that we get here, is that Christ is being made fully aware in symbolic ways, perhaps, of how great the cost of his messiahship is going to be. And then um, the second theme, as I mentioned, I think is that of identity in particular. And if we look at the story of the temptation of Moses, it begins with God talking to Moses and telling him, thou art my son and I have a work for thee. And when Satan comes in the ensuing scene to tempt him and challenge him, right, he, his response is, I know that I am a son of God. And so it's significant, it seems to me, that Satan begins his temptations of Christ by saying, if you are the Christ, if mm. you are the Christ. So if we try to apply this to ourselves, I think what we're being told is um, that our paramount devotion has to be to our role as sons of God, daughters of God, and faithfulness to that identity. Um, 
And it seems pretty subtle. You know, you brought the example of Moses. It's, it's almost like he's just trying to sneak that in there and call him a son of man to maybe, you know, these little subtle things that if we're not paying attention can start to influence our, our way of thinking, you know, as far as how Satan is trying to get us to go away from our true identity. Yeah, and President Nelson has spoken about this to the youth of the church very recently, right? Where he has, he has talked about uh, the temptation to find our identity, to ground our identity in any other, any other names or labels or categories. Uh, that seems to be one of the preeminent temptations of this particular moment in our society. So how do we combat this? How do we stick to what we know? Uh, because they are going to come, we know that. So what's the, what are some things that we can do to kind of resist? What did the Savior do to resist these temptations? You know, it's fascinating. There's a phrase, a three-word phrase, it is written, that gets used three times with three temptations. So as the devil gives him this temptation of, if thou be the Son of God, then command this stone to be turned into <laughs> bread, it ties into what the devil has always been preaching, which is don't suffer, don't work, don't toil, don't labor, just take the crown, take the glory, mm. take things that don't belong to you, use your God-given powers to gratify yourself, whatever that may look like, either a desire, appetite, or a passion. And so I love the fact that Jesus doesn't sit there and deliberate this temptation, he instantly fires back by quoting a scripture. It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. The second temptation also begins with this, if thou be the son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written. I, I find that fascinating that Satan is now going to quote Psalm 91 in an effort to tempt Jesus. Wow to cast yourself down. So the adversary can use words of scripture, words of prophet. He can take truths mm -hmm. and couch it in a way to get you to then believe a misapplication or a lie. And so if you, if you picture Jesus stories high, six, seven stories high, looking down at the plaza, you can picture him contemplating the need to love, to teach, to serve, to, to gain these disciples, and then here sits Satan saying, you don't have to work. Just cast yourself down, an angel will catch you. Instantaneous discipleship, they're all gonna follow you. And I love that Jesus responds, it is written, again, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. It's that beautiful way of saying, I am not going to put myself in a position that forces God to do something to save me when I had full control not to do that in the first place. You know, that's a really scary thing, you know, to think about how, how cunning, you know, as the Book of Mormon talks about, how cunning he can be in, in using scripture and, and allowing, you know, and today we can see there's so many ways that we can justify sin or justify uh, our actions and our choices by using scripture taken out of context. One thing I'd love to, to touch on it, um, as we, you know, as we go into this, um, the Savior's ministry, he needs help. And uh, we get to this point where he, he starts to call uh, disciples or apostles um, to help him out. And I think it's so interesting just the manner in which he goes about doing it because he's still trying to establish, 
you know, uh, to others who he is. Mm -hmm. And um, can we talk a little bit about the calling of, you know, Simon and, and others and their reaction to him and how we can relate to that ourselves? So you'll notice some, some differences in the calling of Peter, James, John, and Andrew. In, in Matthew's account, it's, it's very simple. He just goes down, Peter and Andrew are throwing their nets into the sea and he calls them and then he calls James and John out of their boat and we're good. I love, this is one of my favorite stories in the New Testament is Luke's version of this story in Luke chapter five because you'll notice he, he comes down to the Sea of Galilee right there in Capernaum and then this incredible verse four. Now when he had left speaking, he said unto Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a drought. I, I don't know about you, but if I'm Peter, the professional fisherman, and I've got this <laughs> transplant from Nazareth who was raised by a carpenter on my boat, I just cleaned my nets and he's telling me, let's go out and go fishing together right now. This isn't the time to do this. I, I would be able to very easily come up with uh, at least a dozen reasons why this would be a bad idea. I love verse five. Simon answering said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. And I can picture a pause. I can picture Peter waiting for Jesus to say, oh, sorry, I, I, I didn't know. I didn't realize. <laughs> I didn't realize. But I can also picture in my mind's eye a look on Jesus' face, one of, what are you gonna do about this, Peter? I'm not taking back the, the invitation. And so this beautiful phrase, nevertheless, at thy word, I will let down the net. I love something that uh, Elder Holland shared about this idea of launch out into the deep. And he shares this concept that Peter had no idea how deep Jesus was inviting him to go in his life, in his ministry, in his efforts. Uh, this, is a, this is a pivotal moment that will have an effect on the entire rest of the New Testament is Peter's miracle catch here where last night the professional fishermen on their boats caught nothing, but now Jesus is on the boat giving the command and they catch so many fish that their nets break and they fill two boats with, those, with that catch. It's phenomenal. You know, for me, I love this story because I can see myself in Peter. I can see all of the reasons why I want to explain to God why I shouldn't do what I know I've been commanded to do. But when I just trust the Lord and when I move forward and do things, um, miracles can happen. Mm -hmm. I can learn, I can grow. At the end of this story, sometimes we put all the emphasis on the fish and on the boats uh, for me. This is not a story about this disciple's ship. It's a story about our discipleship. It's about us turning our will over to the Lord and trusting him, even when it doesn't make sense. Yeah, there's one word in the verse you read that uh, invites us to consider a whole backstory that we don't fully know about. And so I think I'm gonna use that to segue into a few thoughts about discipleship. He says, Master, we have toiled all the night. So he's not a stranger to mm -hmm. him. He's acknowledging already a kind of relationship that has been kindled, or perhaps just by reputation, he honors him with that, with that name. But <clears throat> the, the, what, what this portends 
is a, a relationship. And, um, you know, I, th I think it's really, it's really significant that in John chapter 6, verse 30, 66, where there's the first disaffection mm -hmm. uh, of disciples, and the word, right, it's translated into King James, they walked no more with him, right? And the word that is used there is apostasis, right? Which, from which we get the word apostasy. Mm -hmm. So what I wanna say is that we are being instructed in New Testament language and stories that discipleship is personal and that it's one-on-one -on -one and it's about walking with Christ. And the fact that sometimes people disaffiliate today and they say they left the church, right? And that's already an indicator that something's amiss. Right, because here everything is centered on that personal relationship. Uh, Marcello D'Ambrosio is a great Catholic scholar who writes about the early church, and he points out something really quite striking. He says, you know, in the age of martyrdom, right, the first Christian centuries, you just, you, you contemplate the horrific deaths mm. that some of these Christians were willing to undergo. And he says, they didn't sacrifice their lives for a set of ideas. They sacrificed their lives for a person. And uh, so I just think that that's beautiful to get that straight from the beginning when we're reading the New Testament, that discipleship is about coming to know Christ, coming to love Him enough, that that is where our loyalty is centered and that we see the church as a resource, as an asset, as a means of enhancing that relationship and strengthening it. Those are beautiful words to think about because from this experience, you know, we have you know, James and John, uh, who were also there. And, and I, I love how you made that differentiation. They're, they're not forsaking everything for the church. They're forsaking everything for Jesus Christ. Okay, so he's, he's called his apostles. They forsake all, they follow him. And then immediately we get to uh, another miracle. Yeah. Uh, you wanna tell us a little bit, a little bit about this? Yeah, I love this. this. This particular miracle, verse. this is Luke chapter 5, verse 12 through 14. It's, it's also repeated over in Matthew chapter 8, verse 1 through 4. Okay. It says, It came to pass when he was in a certain city, behold, a man full of leprosy, who seeing Jesus fell on his face and besought him. And I find it fascinating that if, if I or you were in that audience, our first reaction would probably be to step away from this mm -hmm. guy and probably take a very defensive posture and say, hey, you're dirty, you don't belong here, you're not like us, get away. And I love the fact that there's nothing in any of our, our gospel accounts of Jesus ever shying away or stiff-arming somebody who's coming to him, especially in a worshipful way as this man. He fell to the ground on his face and then the wording that he, that he gives here, to me, is the beautiful pattern or template that I have thought through dozens and dozens of times in my own life when I've needed help from the Lord. I've learned so much from this unnamed leper. We mm -hmm. don't know his name, but he's one of my heroes. He says, Lord, if thou wilt. Now, there's that word if, but in this context, it's a really good, submissive, if, if it be thy will. Like a plea. Exactly. Okay. That's what that implies mm -hmm. to me, this complete submission of my will, that I don't go to God with demands. I'll only believe in you, I'll only worship you if you give me this. It's more, Lord, if thou wilt, and then he shows his beautiful faith, thou canst make me clean. And I love how, it's, it's interesting how he's not questioning if he can, he's declaring 
I, I know you can, it, you know, it wasn't, it's not like, will you heal me if you're able to do this? I love the fact that in this particular miracle, it is his will to heal this leper. And so if you look at verse 13, but if you look at it through the lenses of what would my reaction have been if I had been standing close to the Savior with this leper in front of him on the ground, as I watch, it says, verse 13, he put forth his hand. I, I could be wrong, but I would guess that most people in that crowd would have probably been <gasps> mm-hmm. taking their breath back and saying, well, don't touch it, no. Just, just say the word, don't touch him. Luke wants to emphasize the physical contact. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. That Jesus is reaching out, he touched him, and he said, I will be thou clean, and immediately the leprosy departed from him. Uh, it's this beautiful moment that is one of many moments in Scripture where we see that Jesus loves interacting with that which is unclean, broken, despondent, hopeless. We had a great discussion earlier with, talked a lot about healing. Uh, anything you wanted to add uh, on, on as far as this specific case that can kind of enhance our, our learning on the healing from the Savior? Yeah, you know, one of the uh, things that Christianity does fairly early in history is to really separate out Christ and God as two very, very distinct kinds of beings, right? For example, Christ clearly suffered and died. He's passable, he's subject to emotions, right? In the creeds, God the Father is identified as without body parts Mm. or passions, impassable, incapable of being moved by human pain and suffering, right? But as Latter-day Saints, we collapse that distinction, right? We believe God was never more God than when he was embodied as Jesus Christ. And so what that means is that God shares in this desire, right? Christ wants us to be well. He wants to alleviate suffering. And it may seem odd, but we are fairly unique in being the only Christian faith that has a creed, right, official doctrine that says, no, God shares, God the Father shares in that pain and suffering. He is passable and he weeps uh, alongside with us as the Christ does. You know, and, and this is a perfect example of a lot of what he's doing is pushing uh, against some of the social norms mm-hmm. of the time. You know, like you were saying earlier, how, you know, approaching a leper, reaching out to him, you know, these are things that aren't done normally uh, in society. What does this tell us about what he is trying to establish at who he is and what he is about to perform? Well, there's a whole pattern here that we see played throughout the New Testament. We see it in Matthew and Luke. I think we see it most markedly in the Gospel of Mark. And that is this oscillation between engagement with the crowds and the multitudes and retreat into solitude. And I think the way that we can relate that to to trends in our recent history uh, really began in the late 18th and early 19th century, this emphasis on spirituality and this uh, suspicion of and contempt for organized religion. Mm-hmm. And so we hear a lot of people, like I teach religion classes, uh, I did at Richmond, and first day of class I would generally ask, how many of you in here consider yourself to be religious? And maybe a hand would go up, maybe two. How many consider yourselves to be spiritual? Every hand in the room goes up, right? And um, I think part of what we're being instructed here, uh, even though those terms weren't used then, is, is that you can't have one without the other. Okay. And so I think we're being told that we find God, <clears throat> right, as King Benjamin taught, 
through our service to other individuals. So this notion that we don't need to go to church, we can just go into the woods and find mm -hmm. God, right? It's a fallacy and it's dangerous because it's self-indulgent and it misdirects us from what the real purpose of our lives is, right? Which is to become part of a community to foster mm -hmm. love and, and relationality. And so we see Jesus, the contemplative and the active, the contemplative and the act of balancing each other and forming a perfect whole. So how do you, um you know, help or, or even just instruct somebody who is kind of at that moment of, I don't need organized religion. I can find spirituality in the world without it. You know, that's a really good question, Ben, because religion for me isn't just about me connecting with God. It's about remembering both of the two great commandments. Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, might, mind, and strength, and love thy neighbor as thyself. And so now when I go to church, it's not just what's in it for me who's gonna help me feel inspired and uplifted, which is important, mm -hmm. but it's who can I lift? Where are the lepers in the congregation that are feeling like they don't belong because they feel unclean, they feel different, they feel ostracized? Who can I go and put an arm around or smile at or ask a question? It's, it's trying to be a little more like Jesus in that community that, that helps me recognize my spirituality. And that communing that mm -hmm. prepares us as we talked about earlier. You know, it's exactly what he's doing. Yeah. He's communing as he begins his ministry. To go and serve. Yeah. You guys have clearly <laughs> shown that you've put in a lot of work and, and I love your insights. And I, I just wanna get some final thoughts. Why did you begin this, this process, this career of really just learning and studying uh, the scriptures and the gospel of Jesus Christ? Um, you know, my, my trajectory, I, I feel, was really shaped by one comment that I heard in one general conference when I was just, just fresh out of graduate school. And I heard President Benson quote Joseph Smith, who said, it is our duty to concentrate all our influence to make popular that which is sound and good and unpopular that which is unsound. And uh, it just burned through me. And I just uh, felt at that minute that in the restoration, we have this incredible abundance of what is sound and good. And uh, I just wanted to devote my life uh, and my career alike to trying to celebrate and excavate uh, that which is beautiful. And uh, most of that resides within the ambit of the gospel. It's clear that you love what you do and that you are making such a difference in the world by by contributing not only just this conversation, but in general with the work you do, it's quite evident. So thank you for sharing of your testimonies and, that's, and bringing that spirit to this conversation today. Thank and thank you for joining us for this discussion on Holy Communion and Healing. I encourage you to record and act upon any impressions you've received. We've also got teaching material available for download at byutv.org slash come follow up. Next week, we explore what it means to be born again and explore more of Christ's miracles. Thank you for watching. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting.